Welcome to Film Fight Club, the show where we don't talk about film, we fight about film. My name is Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and I'm joined here by Chris Evans, a local filmmaker. Hello, hello. And Virat Nehru, a freelance writer and critic. Hello, everyone. Now, we're going to be a new show coming to you on 2SCR on Wednesday nights. But before we get into our first fight, we should probably explain the rules of Fight Club, Film Fight Club. The first rule being, we do not talk about Film Club. The second rule is that you do not talk about Film The third rule is, when the refs say stop, the fight is over. Rule number four, only two to a fight. Rule number five, one fight at a time. Rule number six, the most important rule, no spoilers. And the last rule, if this is your first night at film club, you have to fight. Now, this is all of our first nights at film club, so I think we we have to fight. But the fights are metaphorical. Metaphorical fights. Yeah. 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 Metaphorical fights. So uh, our first segment is in cinemas, the movie of the week. And the movie of the week is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Mind blown. Mind blown. Now, we just saw this. And I got to say, I'm a fan of the first one. I'm a fan of Marvel. And this did blow me away. This the first this first film kind of set the tone, changed a bit, changed the standard for what we kind of expect from Marvel films, and this certainly kept it up. If you love the '80s, if you love Fleetwood Mac, if you love Cheap Trick, this will be your film. If you are craving appearances from classic '80s icons of famous TV shows, which I will keep as a wonderful surprise, then this is your film. If you think Kurt Russell hasn't made a great flick in <laughs> quite a long time, then this is your movie because he comes back. He is in the film as Peter Quill's father, and everyone is back. You have no spoilers, Glenn. This is in the trailer. Is, 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 is that a spoiler? Okay, tra- yes, trailers give away a little bit too much, but that's another discussion for another week. You have all the characters. You have Karen Gillan coming back. You have Zoe Zoldana. You have Bradley Cooper as Rocket. And you have Vin Diesel as the adorable baby Groot. Um, yeah. I, I f- found a lot of the references that you're referring to, to be frank, quite irritating. I thought this was on the Family Guy level of humor where it's not necessarily witty, but haha, it's funny because they reference that thing that I know. Um, I found this to be pretty much in line with the humor throughout the film, which is aggressively ironic to the extent that you do not care about anything. Um, I found characters are constantly quipping and undermining any dramatic resonance that could have built up over the course of the film. But this is... This is a Marvel film. It's supposed to be irreverent. It's supposed to be fun. You know, someone is supposed to say, I'm going to destroy the world, and then there's a dance-off. That's great. It was one of the highlights of the first film, and you see a lot of that um, in this latest entry, too. I would counter that something is more fun when we're able to feel a sense of gravity, you know, a sense that things are at real stake. This film opens with a action scene that sets the tone for what's to follow in two ways. The first is that it's we're basically weightless CGI action where things are flying all over the place, getting thwacked, but nothing is really felt. Nothing has a, a strong impact, which is basically the way the film is written and the way that the action that throughout plays out. And also, it feels like a rehash of the way that the first film opened uh, with an action sequence while somebody dances. And that mirrors how this film essentially just goes through the motions of what we expect from a Marvel film. When the villain inevitably reveals his evil plan, it's not because there's any real believable reason for him to be motivated to do that, but simply it's the time in the film where the villain has to bring out the evil plan. Um, And, you know, when it's time for a big explosion, mass destruction climax, it's not because that's necessarily been earned by the film, but simply because that's what inevitably happens at the third act of any Marvel film. But Chris, you've got to admit, 
what a soundtrack. I mean, James Gunn is the sort of guy I would like to hang out with just to listen to his playlist. He does oh, I, have great taste in music. Yeah, I kind of just want to hear... I, I don't know where I'm going to get the soundtrack of this, but I, I really do want it. But on the, in terms of the plot, this kind of went in the direction... This is the first Marvel film to really go in the direction of classic science fiction as we know it. And if you're a Star Trek fan, aside from the numerous Star Trek actors who are in the film, some of whom will be a, a surprise, the main... The focus of the film is on the idea of a celestial being, an an immortal type figure, a kind of figure who appears in a lot of the early Star Trek and particularly in the next generation. And whether what their their actions, what they do by virtue of their being immortal and relatively all powerful is by virtue of that simply moral. And yes, it wasn't explored in depth as um, some of the great Star Trek films, but they're going in that direction. I'm so excited to see where they take them and where they go next. I, I will give this film that some of the visual design and some of the sci-fi concepts that Glenn is referring to are quite striking. I just, as he also alluded to, I wish they were more fleshed out. I think that's, that's the main problem. It's, it's the idea that Marvel just teases these ideas, but in the end ends up being quite derivative and they dare not follow through. And you kind of feel cheated. You feel that, oh, look at this great moral conflict that could have unfolded. But in the end, it turns out to be quite a tame problem. The films tend to, especially this one, I think, tend to undermine themselves by having characters that are constantly quipping, by playing almost every possible dramatic beat as a joke. This film goes in a bit of a different direction to most of the Marvel films by having a genuinely moving, even I as a big Marvel detractor must admit, climax. However, I feel as though the film could have earned it a lot more if it had let the jokes rest you know, for five minutes here and there and let the character emotions and conflicts be more deeply felt. Um, I feel like there's a veil of irony that's stopping this from being what it could be. But there's something... Sorry, there's- there's something about this ironic detachment, which is in Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, by the time the first one came out, people were kind of somewhat getting over these Marvel films. There were slightly all the same Iron Man 3 had come out, and it wasn't really doing anything for anyone. And suddenly you have a film which is aware of its roots, where, and the Stanley cameo in this one, where they kind of are quite self-reflexive, is absolutely one of the best. That's one to look out for. It's amazing. But at the same time, what's really disappointing is that you get none of the actual consequences and that's the main problem marvel films set up this great premise all the time by the end of it nothing matters what matters in the film you don't care about anyone and that's the main problem for any marvel film it's a bit of a cliche to say that big cgi blockbusters resemble video games but i genuinely felt when i was watching the third act of this film that i was watching a big boss fight you know target the small little um sub-targets big guy taunting you in the background saying you can't defeat me um, but to, yeah. to be fair with this boss fight, there is a one line, and you will know it when you see it, which is up there with they lives, you know, I'm here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of bubblegum. And in terms of, you know, that, and if, again, if you're an 80s fan, if you're a fan of games, particularly arcade games, there's something in there you're, you're really going to like. This, you know, I'm, it's remarkable about the Guardians of the Galaxy series and that the Avengers were supposed to be the ensemble piece they would do, the one where they brought everyone together. But this one, a relatively obscure comic where no one knew any of the characters, uh, ended up being the one that was much more endearing because the Avengers, they're all kind of the alpha figures. They are constantly, not so much that they're fighting with each other, but they all come from very different strands. They're going to be lumped together. Whereas the Guardians, um, they are 
more birds of a feather, and it is so much fun to watch. The Guardians are allowed to have more interesting backstories, uh, which have something to do with real human emotions, uh, which gets lost when we're talking about the epic god figures that appear usually in the Avengers franchise. Though, though I am a bit disappointed when you're talking about human emotions and relationships that I think we've had too much of an overdose of family in these big blockbusters. I'm kind of over family by now. Yeah, anyone who's seen the latest Fast and the Furious film uh, oh, will God. know that there's, let's, there's, let's not go there. Uh, look, there's, there's, there is a focus on family, and but and as Chris said, the end of this film it changed tack and was surprisingly emotional, and that character investment that you get over a series of films which you don't get with. We didn't get initially in the series. I mean, we don't have friends anymore. Everyone is family, which is kind of weird if I think about it. <laughs> Just off the top of my head, I'm wondering if this has something to do with like a American values. People feel like they're losing the concept of family. Let's throw it back in, in into a blockbuster cinema. You know, cherish families. Throw the the, the value of a family. I, I think know. the political undercurrent definitely has a lot to do with it. You know, everyone's kind of feeling a bit lost, and you know, harking back to traditional value seems to be the way to go. Well, it is remarkable how a lot of these series have protagonists who, whether it be DC or Marvel, are orphans or come from this fractured background. So Peter Quill is obviously no exception. Uh, now, we have to go to a short break, uh, but we are going to be back very soon talking about big cinema, small cinema, and all the big things studios and independent filmmakers are doing. Stay tuned. Fresh perspectives on local and international stories. Once you get out, you're on your own. If you get the gutter again, you go back where you come from. We want to leave this country in as good a state as when we first came. There's a neighbourhood and a wealth in our neighbourhood. You can have too much dignity in this world. The Wire, weekdays at 6pm on 2SER 107.3. To celebrate the success of 2SER's first ever podcast series, Just Words, we've teamed up with Audiocraft to bring you a live listening event on Thursday, May 18. Our podcast series has gone beyond the hype and headlines of Australia's racial discrimination laws, and you can watch the 2SER team record our final episode of Just Words live as we put 18C on trial and determine if our race-hate laws really did murder free speech. One last time. Come on down on Thursday, May 18, and listen to a mixture of live and recorded stories as we explore the new frontier of the culture wars. Doors open at 7pm in Redfern at 107 Projects. Be sure to book your ticket now as spaces are limited. To find out more, head to 2SER.com. And we're back with Film Fight Club. Now, we've just been talking about Marvel and Guide to the Galaxy, and this really is a signature for what the studios are doing. A lot of the studios are doing right now. They're bringing out the big flagship, huge budget numbers. Uh, We have Spider-Man and Thor coming up later this year. And it seems to be two directions a lot of the places are going. Either they're going to go for these things that are $200 million that are probably going to bring in something close to a billion and are part of franchises, have that branding and guaranteed success. Whereas other independent filmmakers and studios are going the complete opposite direction with films like Get Out, which was made for $4.25 million, but has grossed over $180 million in the US and is growing and is an incredible film. You have Colossal in cinemas right now, an independent film starring Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis, which has grown hugely popular. And that is, again, a, it's a genre mashup. It is a rom-com and it's a horror film, but, or should I say a monster film, but there's... Uh, it's, it's quite a big debate in the film world, and there's a, a differing opinion right here on which direction the studio should go. That's true, Glenn. Uh, I definitely feel 
you know, people hate the big studios and they really don't like them. But I think big money, big studios, the spectacle of cinema, that's all necessary because that's what really, really puts bums on seats. And I'm not just being cynical here. I really do feel there's an economic argument that really benefits the whole industry. You know, the fact that you can pump out a fast eight, you know, can make an incredible record amount of money over the weekend, even though it's quite a terrible film. But let's not talk about that. Hey, it was <laughs> like, a submarine. It was it, like, what, what, what more do you, it was, it was Vin Diesel versus a submarine. What more do you want? Uh, well, Vin Diesel in space, probably. Uh, that would be great. Probably be the next film. And that we've, maybe we've let it a plot point. Who knows? Know where I was go. Yeah, <laughs> no idea. Fast but, night from outer space. Let, let's come back to this. But the idea that, you know, Fast Aid could make so much money. Now, that allows films like Get Out. That allows films like Colossal and Raw and these other gems to subsist, you know, because that's finally in the end. You want films like these to be made, but where does the capital come from? Where does the money come from? And more importantly, the big studios allow the spectacle of cinema to survive in an age of Netflix, in an age where you're watching most of your films on your mobile, on your tablet, on your TVs. When you don't want to go out to your local cinema, you don't want to support cinema. You don't want to support your local indie film. How do you do that? I'm all for the spectacle of cinema, but I'm not sure that the way that the studios are going over about this at the moment is the best way to capture it. I think that we have been submerged in a sea of monotony as a result of the practices of the studios these days. Um, essentially... What's happened, I think, over the last 20 years of uh, studio filmmaking is that they've gone from a model of making a larger number of films per year with uh, spread out numbers of budgets to prioritizing the big budget spectacle films and producing less smaller budget films as a result. I think this is a natural uh, outcome of you know, a money-driven system where the, uh, the kinds of films that suck up huge amounts of money to be made for te as tentpoles are uh, necessarily risk-averse because so much money has been invested in them and they necessarily work on iconography that can re be repackaged as merchandise. So uh, uh, um, they all seem to follow along a very similar um, type of imagery, theme, storytelling. When I was watching Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, I felt like I was watching any number of movies that I've seen before in cinemas in the last few years. And I feel as though we're being deprived of the variety that the cinematic experience can offer us. Um, the example that Glenn mentioned of Get Out is a good example of the other way of doing things. Yeah, Get Out. Uh, we, Verad and I saw this the other week. It is a film which deals with quite complex issues in a way which you wouldn't expect necessarily a big studio to do. Um, it deals with uh, some insidious forms of racism in the US, but there's also a comedy, and you have some absolutely phenomenal actors. If you're a West Wing fan, Bradley Whitford, who plays Josh Lyman, is on the show. There is a number of actors who wouldn't necessarily be permitted to headline a studio flick, but here are absolutely on form and on point. And that's exactly my point, Glenn. You know, the idea that you can have these crossovers that happen, and that's because of these big productions. You can have actors like Daniel Radcliffe taking risks with Swiss Army Man. You can have actors like Robert Pattinson taking risks with films like Childhood of a Leader. You can have actors like Kristen Stewart taking risks with Personal Shopper. That can only happen if they have the security of a big film, that they know that they have made money, they can have these passion projects. We should not hate money. Money is not a bad thing. <laughs> 
Money's not a there, yeah, at first. Money's not a bad thing. I wonder which of the two films you, that we've mentioned that Universal Pictures have just released recently they're feeling better about. Uh, they, you know, their return on investment from Fast Eight, which is this huge, huge mega budget production. Um, I, I, that is has been produced based on the theory that by spending a huge amount of money, you're creating a film that can be released as a massive event worldwide and, uh, you know, create say on a two hundred million dollar budget, you know, six hundred million dollars of profit, uh, uh, hypothetically something like that. Versus it's made nine hundred eight million as of yesterday. Right, exactly. Versus something like Get Out, which was uh, produced on a minuscule four point two million dollar budget, but made one hundred eighty million dollars in the U.S. The question is, how much money is being left off the table by investing that money into mega budget blockbusters instead of producing a large amount of small films, as the producer of Get Out, Jason Bloom, has started to do as a new business model to challenge the current method in Hollywood. But here's the thing: we joke about Fast Eight and all the stuff done in the Furious films. But there is stuff you can do in a film where you spend $200 million or more where you can't see anywhere else. The spectacle of this is riveting. Um, we talk about these films, as, a lot of them, as if they're monotonous of the same. But remember, several 20 years ago, and it is 20 years ago now, Titanic was in that same basket. This is a film that was made then for a record budget. And this is something where people look at Titanic today and they think of... The, the Vision of twelve, but often people will go straight to the film, and the visualization and understanding of those events are drawn from a spectacular recreation of this, which could not have been made but for studio money. Mm-hmm. Um, Titanic is an example of, I think, uh, large-scale spectacle filmmaking done right, because uh, I would argue, because it's the product of one mad. Uh, ocean exploration obsessed director with the ego that could justify a $200 million extravaganza um, with visual uh, film language on a grand, grand scale. But he worked his way up there from working on small films and being given a chance by small independent producers. And I wonder how many people who've been born in the age where a movie on James Cameron's scale is simply expected and monotonous um, have the talent and the vision to stage a spectacle like James Cameron has uh, had been able to do in the past. I'd like to say that we should be w- giving people a chance with smaller films and letting them work up instead of just focusing on large-scale studio blockbusters. But Chris, I, let me assure you that bigger studios do allow that. They allow smaller directors. They allow indie directors like, let's say, Taiki Waititi. You know, he's bringing his indie credibility to Tor, you know, a big franchisee film. You know, they allow indie directors to flourish in a big production. And for them, for most of these directors, it's their very first attempt at handling a film at that, such a major budget. And that's a great thing because that's how you develop your skills, your process, and you handle big budgets. It's, and it's a great thing. I think that is a fair point, but I'd like to see how much personality we'll actually see through because I'm I'm very skeptical of Marvel. And I think the counterexample to that is that there's also been a trend in, of recent blockbusters being handed to directors with not much experience. For example, Rupert Sanders, who made Ghost in the Shell and Snow White and the Huntsman, two movies it seems like no one liked. Uh, that um, Ghost, he, the Ghost in the Shell is another discussion. In right, yeah. That he didn't have the experience to back up a production on that level. However, because the studios are only interested in funding large-scale films, he was, went straight into that mode of production. I, I think when you talk about it, and this is something which is a very important point, in the end of it, when you come down to it, movies are fighting with TV at this point. TV writing, TV scripts, and you know, 
the quality of production and television has grown exponentially. Movies right now are struggling to survive, and at this point, I think that's what we need. We need that. We need the spectacle of cinema to survive. We need that to survive for our local cinemas to survive. We need the big productions to happen because they're a necessary evil. I suppose hopes lie with Netflix for the the middle ground. Oh God, Netflix uh, and chill. Netflix. Oh, Netflix. What and what's happening there is incredible. The Irishman, uh, rumored but not confirmed previously to have come to be a Netflix platform. Brad Pitt is now making a major film on Netflix. Major directors are being lured to Netflix now. It's it's quite an interesting turn. Scorsese doing something as uh, well. well it, 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 was, it was yeah. It's well. It's it's been reported. I don't think it's confirmed, but it's it's very possible. And the idea of the now of a Rob De Niro and Scorsese picture something on that level to be released on Netflix. It would be oh, a boon coup. For yeah, it's a it's a huge turnaround. Yeah, so uh, there's a, a lot going to develop in this area in the next coming months and years. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back talking Bond, James Bond. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jeff Field, 2SER's News Director. After almost three decades covering news in Sydney, I'm proud to be leading a team of eager young journalists bringing you Sydney's only independent news service, not influenced by commercial or government interests. Whether it's local, national or international, 2SER will cover the main stories without fear or favour weekday mornings every half hour from 6 till midday and when news breaks. So tune in for News with a Difference, 2SER 107.0. Every Wednesday at 8pm, Sideways Through Sound is your weekly dose of strumming, droning and psychedelic reverie. Sideways Through Sound's pathways for the guitar travel across spotlight albums, interviews and live studio sessions. Each week, Sideways Through Sound brings you the best in folk-flavoured acoustica and shimmering psychedelia. So sit back and relax with The Sonic Assassin every Wednesday from 8pm right here on 2SER 107.3. Where are you getting your daily dose of reading? Are you an ardent bookshopper? Are you an e-reader fanatic? Do you ever get out and hit up some live storytelling? My name is Andrew Popel and Final Draft is of course that half hour every Saturday morning where we sit back, relax with a good book and talk reading and literary culture. Final Draft. Books, writing and publishing. Telling stories is such a human thing to do. Saturday mornings from 10 on 2SER 107.3. And we're back with Film Fight Club. Now, James Bond. James Bond is the arguably the most pop, well-known character, one of the most well-known characters, at least in the history of cinema. He's been played by no less than six performers across 24 films, most recently being Daniel Craig. And Craig uh, recently finished up his four-film contract, and there's been speculation that he might come back. He's made some pretty strong statements about uh, his feelings in James Bond. Uh, the Voso reports that there's $150 million in it if he does two more films. <laughs> <laughs> they basically might have driven a truckload of money up Robert to Robert Downey Jr. level money. Yeah, quite, oh, quite some, yeah, quite something. So, however, uh, what you might not know is that right now the studios are pitching to the Broccoli family that each of them, it's the contract's up for grabs. Which studio is going to do James Bond? Who can do it the best? So we might see a new studio. We might see a new Bond. Uh, having who, who might have uh, the new filmmakers, the new studio might have discretion to say, hey, we want someone else new. But we don't know. But in the meantime, there's quite a few people who are up there in terms of popularity and who might make a pretty spectacular bond. That's true, and one of them is Idris Elba. I know, I know, it's a contentious choice, but I think that would be really good. 
it's about time we had a person of color playing Bond, and it's about time we kind of caught up with the times. And I know a lot of these things kind of feel tokenistic, but visibility is important. And person of color, you know, actors who are persons of color, and that kind of playing in those situations and having in those roles really does make a difference. It might not feel like a difference, but it does in the end. And that's very important. And Elba is very well known and he's got a profile that can play Bond. He's done Luther, so he's got that dark personality that's going for him. He's got that deadpan humor, which is classic Bond, to go with the street credibility. Now, I'm using street in a very positive sense, unlike some other people have used street to discredit Elba, but I think he would be a very good fit. Well, it's interesting. I'm going to use the exact same argument. I'm going to say that that's the reason Idris shouldn't play Bond, because you look at every single actor who's played Bond. Sean Connery was a milkman. Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan were uh, relatively well-known, but still TV actors. Daniel Craig had a couple of big films under his belt, but nothing really. All these guys, you'd still have to Google or IMDb them. Wait, who have they just cast? Elba is known. Elba is a known entity. Everyone will see him as Idris Elba. The role is has always been bigger than the man, and this is why I've been in favor of Daniel Craig's staying on. He's taken the series in amazing directions and uh, he's still got a few years left in him. I agree with this idea. I think uh, Idris Elba, to me, already is strongly associated with a number of other characters, most prominently for me, Luther. Um, I'm not sure that we can shake that image, uh, you know, in making him Bond. It's like the suggestion of Tom Hiddleston playing Bond, I, I thought it was similarly um, short-sighted because everybody's just going to see Loki. Or the Night Manager. <laughs> also, Tom Hiddleston is a terribly wooden actor, in in his sort of Bond audition, which was the night manager to begin with. So yeah, Hugh think, Laurie was the better. Oh, in any role, Hugh Laurie is the better actor. So let's not even go there. <laughs> not yeah. a question. But, but I, th- I think Elba makes a stronger point, mainly because there's this idea that what Bond represents in the 21st century, and that's what's the most important thing. When we're saying Bond, we're not just casting a, an actor or a character. We are just redefining our sensibilities at what we think the world is like and where we see the world headed. And I think in that way, Elba is an important recognition of that fact. That's an interesting uh, way of looking at it, I think, because I, I feel the last couple of James Bond movies have kind of shifted away from going to a more contemporary take to a nostalgic look back. So the question is, how much do we want James Bond to be something that's redefined uh, to represent the state of the world now? And how much do we want it to be a kind of nostalgic thing tied to the past? Some of the arguments against Il, uh, Idris Elba being cast have been that his ra- that the race of James Bond actually is important because it ties him to a world of British upper-class uh, life and privilege. Um, in the changing face of Britain, uh, this doesn't necessarily mean he'll have to be white. However, there are, I would say that white people obviously still feel a huge amount of privilege, and maybe that is part of James Bond's world. Well, there's so much that has gone into this character over the course of decades and decades. We've seen him go really gritty, as you said, in Skyfall and Spectre recently, but we've seen uh, the height of camp in A View to a Kill, Octopussy, some of the Roger Moore films, and... I feel we are in a time where we want these gritty pictures, but we also want some light relief. And Craig is someone who walks that line very well. You might remember the scene at the beginning of Skyfall where he jumps on board a train as the train is being ripped off while adjusting his cuffling with an absolute straight face. You know, Roger Moore would have just given someone a grin and walked off, you know, wouldn't, and whereas you know, Timothy Dalton might have just been really dark, a little too gritty about it, but Craig, he knows, he knows how to walk the middle of that, and he... and I don't think he's done yet. 
I, I, there's there's definitely qualities to Daniel Craig. Uh, he can pull off the jokes, but I'm not sure that he can really pull off the sensitive ty- side. I, just then you mentioned Timothy Dalton as being ultra serious. And while he didn't joke as much, he definitely showed a lot of humanity, which I'd like to see more vulnerability from Craig. We've seen that in Casino Royale. Not so much since. The idea is, you know, the Bond is, in the end, a relic of the past. And that's, I think, for certain, and that Skyfall has reiterated that, and the sort of modern take on Bond has been trying to f- find out where he fits in. And I think that's something the Broccoli family has to decide, you know, where they do want to take this character in the end. Yes, they do, and hopefully we'll have news on that very, very soon. We're going to wrap up in a couple of minutes, but first we have our 30 seconds of excitement. We each get to say what we're pumped for in the coming days and weeks. I'm very pumped for the American Essentials Film Festival. Uh, the opening night film, opening night gala, is 20th Century Women, starring Annette Benning, and they have a number of other very prominent American features, including American Pastoral, a Philip Roth adaptation. It's playing at Palace Cinemas around the country, opens on May 9th, something definitely worth checking out. Virat. Well, I'm really pumped for an Indian film. It's called Bahubali, The Conclusion. It's uh, the second part of a two-part film that's been... The first part was released about a couple of years ago. So this is a epic fantasy drama, you know, high-budget, high-locales sort of take on, you know, uh, medieval fantasy, which is fantastic. S.S. Rajmuli, the director, has done his bit, and he's really, really you know, set up the world, which we've all been immersed into. So we've been waiting for the film to come out and, you know, really solve the dilemma of where it's going to go. After hearing your takes on it tonight, I'm pretty excited to finally catch up with and see Get Out. Ah, uh, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Get Out, Chris. Oh, get, get, get Out and see the film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. Will do. <laughs> Excellent. Well... That's it for Film Flight Club. We'll be joining you in the coming Wednesdays. Uh, So stay tuned, listen to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. And just remember, don't talk about Film Club. Unless you're, you know, promoting it to your friends and playing around how awesome it is. And then that's okay to break that rule. Please do that. Please tell your friends. But don't talk about it if you're not telling your friends. Yeah, just tell your friends. Don't talk about it. Give it a different title when you talk about it. Just do talk about it, but don't break the rules or something. I think that works. Right, we will see you Wednesday nights. Have a good night and enjoy movies. Yep. Good night. Good night.